Friends, listening to the Word of God ought to be the delight of every child of God because it is through the Word of God, heard and believed, the Spirit of God applies to us all the redemptive blessings of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'd like to now invite you to do just that. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And this evening we'll give our attention to verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Listen carefully now to the Word of God. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now, by your Spirit, shape and form our minds that we might love one another just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Cause our faith to rise and cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. May your truth prevail over our unbelief so that your sanctifying purposes for us may be fulfilled. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's no way you can read 1 Corinthians and come away thinking that you can somehow repackage the Christian faith in a way that would be acceptable and attractive to unregenerate people of any ethnicity. We are told in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, that the message of Christ and Him crucified is scandalous to Jewish culture and it is insane to Gentile culture. So it offends the sensibilities of every culture in some way or the other because the world cannot understand or accept or submit to the wisdom of God. The world sees God's wisdom in His Word as foolish. And the only way an unregenerate person can come to see the wondrous beauty and the wisdom of the cross is through the miracle of regeneration. 
he must be born again. She must be born again. This is how anyone comes to a saving knowledge of God. Now, we are able to grasp this truth firmly when it comes to conversion, but somehow we forget that the same principle applies to us when it comes to living the Christian life. And so every now and then, in every generation, there always seems to be a temptation to dress up the Christian faith in cultural clothes so that the, cultural, so that the culture can view it, the Christian faith, with respect and admiration. This is a great temptation. And there are, of course, different reasons why we do this. Sometimes we, we do it because we love the things of the world and want to be accepted. We seek the approval of men and self-glory. And sometimes we do it because we're fed up. We're tired of being rejected and reviled. And we wonder, is there a way that we can meet culture halfway? Is there a way we could adjust our status? Perhaps shake one hand with culture so that we can be seen as enlightened and not foolish, sophisticated and not scum. But Paul teaches us in this letter that if we do that, if we allow the Christian faith to be tainted by worldly wisdom, the very thing that God has judged, then we empty the cross of its saving power. We empty the cross of its sanctifying power. If the church is to be built up, if she is to grow up in every way into Christ, then our faith ought not to rest in the wisdom of men, but the wisdom of God and the power of God. See, God has snatched us from the cultural strongholds of this age, from the perishing, decaying values and beliefs of this world, and He has brought us into the kingdom of His Son. And so we're not slaves to culture anymore. We're certainly not our own, but belong body and soul to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, at Corinth, there were certain members led by certain leaders who were fascinated with whatever their culture was fascinated with. Corinthian culture placed a high premium on speaking abilities. And so you can guess what spiritual gifts would have been more sought after by these people. That's right. The gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom, these were speaking gifts. And you can see these gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. So look ahead at 1 Corinthians 12 in your Bibles. You'll see them mentioned in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 8. The text says the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge, literally the, the logos or the message of knowledge and the message of wisdom. These were instructional or teaching gifts, manifestations of the Spirit given to the church for the common good, given for the benefit of the congregation, for their spiritual growth, to make much of Jesus. And yet certain people were flaunting or boasting in these gifts for their own purposes. After all, they had the kind of gifts that their culture admired, valued speaking gifts but all these people cared about was themselves and their freedoms and cultural integration they acted upon this knowledge but they did not stop to consider what effect their actions would have on others and so Paul says to these people there's something deficient about that kind of knowledge A knowledge that is not loving towards your brothers and sisters in Christ is really arrogance in disguise. And so in this passage, we will get to learn that in Christ, knowledge and love are inseparable. And therefore, to, be, to, know, to know Him, or, to rather, or rather to be known by Him, as Paul says in Galatians 4.9, is to be transformed into a loving person who does no wrong to his neighbor. True knowledge is always accompanied by love. And so the first lesson we can learn from this passage is simply this. 
Knowledge without love is arrogance. Knowledge without love is arrogance. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, in this section, Paul addresses another set of questions that the Corinthians had written to him about. We know this because of that phrase, now concerning. That's an indication that he's addressing a different question than marriage or singleness. This is about eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. And in order to grasp what Paul is saying, it helps to, to know a little bit about Corinthian society. You see, Corinth had a very prominent temple culture. There were several temples dedicated to many pagan gods, and all of them represented by their respective idols. And so people would regularly go up to these temples and they would offer sacrifices to these gods. And after these sacrifices were offered, uh, some of the meat would then be taken by the priests. Uh, some were sold in the marketplace and some of the meat were eaten by the worshippers at the temple itself. This was just the culture of the day. Within the temples, there were dining halls where people would regularly gather and eat together and socialize. So this was just part of the culture of the day. Just like hanging out at the mall is part of the culture here in the UAE. At Corinth, in those days, if you wanted to socialize, you would go to the temple. People would celebrate feasts in honor of particular gods, or they would celebrate their birthdays by sacrificing to their favorite idol, and then eat together with their friends. Uh, you could have your child's birthday party at, at the temple. Sacrifice to a god and celebrate with your friends. If you wanted to have lunch with your business associates, you'd meet at the temple, sacrifice at the temple, and eat together. So you can get, you can get the picture. If you didn't eat and hang out at the temple, you were viewed as kind of odd antisocial almost and so when some of these Corinthians became Christians they no longer wanted to go to the temple and participate in idolatry but they were also worried about being looked down upon they were worried if people would say what's wrong with these Christians why are they so uptight about everything so antisocial don't they want to be good neighbors don't they want to be good citizens don't they want to boost our economy? And so this was a real burning question. Can a Christian eat food or meat that was sacrificed to idols in the idol's temple? So it's a very specific question. It's not about eating food offered to idols in general, but at the temple in that setting. We know that because of verse 10. Look at verse 10. It's a very specific question. But then there was a group of believers who appealed to their knowledge gifts. And they said, look, all of us possess knowledge. Did you notice the translators use quotation marks? And that tells us this is, this is something that these knowers were saying. So what were they saying? What was this knowledge that they believed in and were teaching? Well, verse 4 answers that for us. An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. They were arguing, well, we have the Spirit. We know that an idol is nothing. These are statues of stone. They're not divine. They're just lifeless objects. There's only one God. So who cares? We're free in Christ to eat this. So what if this juicy steak was offered to Poseidon or Aphrodite? I'm free to go to the temple, hang out with other non-Christians, eat this food sacrificed to idols. But Paul responds, this knowledge of yours, it puffs up. It's making you arrogant. You know, that word puffs up or arrogant is a word that Paul uses quite often in this letter. 1 Corinthians 4.18, he says, some are arrogant. 1 Corinthians 
I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Or take 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2. If you tolerate sin in the congregation and you don't do anything about it, this is what Paul and the Holy Spirit think about you. 1 Corinthians 5, 2. You are arrogant. You get the picture. Lots of arrogant people in the church. This knowledge makes you arrogant. But, he says, love builds up. Love is edifying. It spiritually builds up the body of Christ. And beloved, this is the testimony of Scripture. Love is the identity card of the church. So you remember what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is also the goal of Christian knowledge and instruction. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Faith that rests in the knowledge of God in Christ is a faith that works through love. Galatians 5.6. In fact, a few chapters later, Paul will say, if I have all knowledge but have not love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. You see, this love is produced by the power of the Holy Spirit as we put our faith in the knowledge of God in Christ. Love is that fruit that the Spirit cultivates through the seeds of knowledge. Galatians 5.22 And this is why, as members of the church, we are told to be about the business of building one another up, not just by speaking the truth, but by speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Beloved, love ought to be your driving motivation for ministry in this body. And so after every sermon, every Bible study, every one-on-one -on -one discipleship meeting in which you learn something new and, and then learn to apply it to your Christian lives, you ought to then desire to use that knowledge to serve others. Build up one another in the faith. Otherwise, we are in danger of becoming these exclusive little groups, these cliques in the church where we discuss these wonderful theological truths, but we don't really care about others. But remember, God has given you these gifts. He has blessed you with understanding by His grace, and He has done so. Why? For the common good. So look around you and think of the struggling mother. Think of the discouraged single woman or the young man caught up in sin, the covetous husband. Minister to these ones in love. Be instruments of God's sanctifying grace in their lives. Exhort and counsel one another. But these Corinthians, a few of them, saw their knowledge gifts as somehow elevating their status above the rest. After all, not everyone had that gift. And so Paul points out that not only were they proud, but their knowledge itself was deficient. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, Paul says, you people are self-deceived. You think you know, but it's incomplete. You do not yet know as you ought to know. You do not know rightly. Remember, the gift is for building up others in love. But Paul says, when I look at you, I don't see that happening. I don't see love being exercised. So that makes me wonder, do you really no. How are you applying this knowledge? And then he does something remarkable. He says, think about your relationship with God. What a strange twist in the argument. Look at verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, you would expect him to say something like, you don't know as you ought to know, but if you really knew God, 
then you would love your brother. That's what you would expect him to say. And he is going to tell us how this love ought to look like very practically in verses 7 to 13. But he's not going to do that without first reminding us where this ability to love comes from. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul says, you've got the gift of knowledge. Great. That's wonderful. But first, let's think about the knowledge that really matters, and that is God knowing you. You see, if God did not choose you and save you, if he did not send his son to redeem you, you wouldn't be able to love him. Or as John says, we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. You see, when the Bible speaks of God knowing his people, it's describing much more than his omniscience, that he has perfect knowledge about everything. No, it's telling us that he has set his electing love upon us. But he does more than that, doesn't he? He defines and demonstrates his love. How? By displaying it on a bloody cross. In the preaching of the gospel, God points his finger, as it were, to the cross and he says, this, this is love. You see, saving knowledge manifests itself in a cross-shaped love. And John explains it for us. 1 John 4, 9-11. He writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that is the wrath-bearer, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved, when we look at the cross, we can see that we are both known and loved. You see, your love for Him is because of His knowledge of you. And so what Paul is doing here in verse 3 is he's helping these proud Corinthians see that claiming to have knowledge without love is really inconsistent with being known by God. Claiming to have knowledge without love is arrogance. And it doesn't build up other Christians. But what was the content of this knowledge? And where were they going wrong? That brings us to the second lesson we can learn from this passage. Knowledge without love fails to grasp the whole counsel of God. Knowledge without love fails to grasp the whole counsel of God. Here's what the Corinthians were saying, and here's how Paul speaks to their claims. Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Again, note those quotation marks. This is what they were saying. Here's what these proud and gifted Corinthians were saying. They were saying that idols of stone are not really gods. Now that is true. That is true. That is a biblically faithful thing to say. Here's what the psalmist says about the false gods of the nations. Psalm 115 verses 4 to 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. In my country, we have to carry them. They're not alive. They're nothing. They have zero value. Now, if you thought that was too direct and offensive, listen to what Jeremiah says. 
Jeremiah 51, verses 17 to 18. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. It's a good verse to memorize. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Jeremiah just offended 80% of the population of India right there. Not very culturally sensitive, is he? An idol has no real existence. That's true. And there is no God but one. That is also true. There is only one God, one true God, and he is the God of the Bible, the triune God who created the heavens and the earth, our Savior who ransomed us for himself. To him belong all glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. There is only one true God. This was the heart and soul of Israel's faith and confession. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45, verse 5 I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Did you hear that? The God of the Bible says, Besides me, there is no God. But when you say that there is no God but one, when you remember this foundation of the law, you also ought to remember the heart of the law. And that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, confessing God's oneness and lordship ought to drive you to apply that truth in loving your brothers and sisters. And when you read that famous passage in Leviticus 19, verses 1 to 18, love is demonstrated by not sinning against your brothers. However, that is not to say that nothing was being worshipped at these idol temples where these people wanted to eat. Look at verses 5 to 6. For although they may be so-called gods, meaning they're not really gods, even though people call them that. Although they may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that these so-called gods are not really gods and lords, but the fact remains that there are many of them. So assessing their true identity is one thing. Denying their presence is another. So, if they are not the one true God, then what are they? We'll turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. Paul says that they are demons. They are demons. Demons are being worshipped as gods at, the, at these temples. Demons were being worshipped. Beloved, every religion... Listen carefully. Every religion, including the majority religion of this country, engages in the worship of demons whether they know it or not. This is what happens in the unseen realm. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 Demons were being worshipped at these temples in Corinth. This is something that these proud Corinthians failed to take into account. So what does that mean for Christians? Well, look at verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see, there was a time... When our lives were ruled by sin and Satan. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course 
of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The spirit that is at work in every unbeliever. But beloved, that does not describe our existence any longer. God in his great mercy has made us alive. By grace we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The God who once stood over us in wrath has forgiven us of our sins. And we are no longer children of the devil, but children of God. This is our standing. We did nothing to earn it and we do nothing to maintain it. We stand before God forgiven and loved because of Christ alone. This is our standing. This is our status. This one true God is our Father. He is the creator of all things including angels and Satan and demons. Satan and demons are not sovereign. They are not the creator. Our Father is. And everyone and everything that exists in creation exists for our Father. And because of the cross of Christ, because of what Jesus has done, we are his new creation. We have one Lord Jesus Christ. He has all authority in heaven and earth and his word governs our lives. God, our Father, created all things, but He created them through Jesus Christ, through His Word. Through Him are all things, all created things. Through Him, we exist. We are united to Him by His Spirit, and it is by His grace that we live. And all of this, all of this boils down to one simple application. We exist to worship Him alone. We exist to please Him, to glorify Him. And so the question, the question of whether a Christian can eat meat sacrificed to idols in the temple precinct ought to be subject to a bigger question. Will this glorify our Savior who bought us? Can we do this in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him? You see, these proud Corinthians had not thought through this, and so Paul reminds them of the awful consequences of not doing that. And that brings us to the third lesson we can learn from this passage. Knowledge without love can be destructive. Knowledge without love can be destructive. Paul says, not only have you failed to take into account that demons are real, but not everyone in the congregation is applying these truths in every situation as they should be. Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. And by this knowledge, Paul means everything he has affirmed in verses 4 to 6. Not everyone has applied these truths to this particular situation. Not all have understanding. What does that mean? Look at the next verse. But some through former association with idols because of their past, their pagan backgrounds, they eat food as really offered to an idol. So when these people land up and eat food at the temple, they're not thinking like you are, that these idols are nothing and that this food is just food. They actually believe that this food is contaminated because it has been sacrificed to these gods and they're eating it in their presence. They're once again becoming idolaters. And their conscience being weak is defiled, he says. The conscience here refers to their awareness of what is sinful and what is not. And that awareness is informed by how they apply the word of Christ to their situation. And Paul says these people have a weak conscience. And that means this awareness is not well informed. Their understanding is not well informed. These people were Christians. Their consciences were washed clean by the blood of Christ, but their consciences were weak. And because their consciences were weak, and they believed that they were sinning by eating the sacrificial food, and because of that, their conscience became defiled. 
So think about Daniel and his friends in Babylon. They didn't want to eat the king's food or wine because they did not want to be what? Defiled. In their case, it was right for them not to do so because God told them what to eat and what not to eat under the law. Whereas here, these people were making a judgment based on their past. And because they were not trusting in their standing in Christ, they were sinning. Now in Romans chapter 14, we see something similar. It's a slightly different situation. In Romans 14, people were thinking about clean and unclean foods under Jewish law. But we learned this. We know that Christ fulfilled the law and that he declared all foods to be clean. Mark 7:19. This is why after the service, having rightly informed our consciences, not because of our past or cultural preferences, but because of the word of Christ, we will gather together. We will give God thanks for all kinds of meat and eat to the glory of God. But in the church at Rome, there were some people who had weak consciences and they believed that they were sinning by eating certain foods. And Paul says in Romans 14, 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. These weak Corinthians thought that eating this sacrificial food was sinful. It was sinful because they were not trusting in God's word concerning how to receive such food. That foods can be eaten if we trust that Jesus has fulfilled the law, that he has declared all foods clean, that we can thank him for the food and eat it. That's what it means to eat in faith and eat to the glory of God. But whoever doubts, says Paul, is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. In other words, you need to be convinced in your mind that this is what scripture says that it is true and apply that to your situation only then can you eat from faith and it won't be sinful so Paul's concern here Paul's concern is a pastoral one that these proud Corinthians were only thinking about themselves oh I'm free in Christ to eat whatever I want this is about my right to eat whatever I want and Paul says you think eating in this way commends you to God? You think that it, doing this makes you more spiritual in his eyes? You think this pleases him? Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And this is in keeping in line with what Paul has already taught us in chapter 7, isn't it? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. There are other things that you ought to consider. Do what counts. See, Paul is not saying that eating this food is sinful. He's saying the Christian life is more than just the freedom to eat whatever you want. See, the message of the cross is not Jesus died so that I can eat what I want. That's not the gospel. Now the message of the cross is that the king of love laid down his kingly rights and his life for people who did not love him. And he rose from the dead so that self-centered people could be transformed by his love into a people who love God and are in turn willing to lay down their lives for one another. And friend, if you've not experienced this kind of love, a divine love that is able to make you lovely, then I want to call on you today to turn to Christ. You see, before the holiness and the worthiness of God's love, we all fall woefully short. We all rightly stand under His judgment because true love cannot endorse or condone evil. But God demonstrates His love for sinners in this way. That he sent his son to take our place and our punishment, not turning a blind eye to evil. He took our place, took our penalty. He came to save all those who would repent of their sins and put their trust in his saving love. To be known by God and to be loved by him is to be in Christ, to put your trust in him.
So turn to Jesus. Taste of his saving love. And to love our Savior is to also love all those he has loved and saved for himself. And so an unloving Christian is a contradiction in terms. These proud Corinthians were saying, I have this knowledge. Look at me. I have the gift of knowledge. I know that an idol has no existence and so I'm free to eat this food. And Paul says the way you're applying this knowledge can destroy your brother. Look at verses 9 to 12. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You're causing your brothers to sin. Well, how does that happen? Verse 10. For if anyone sees you, so Paul says, think with me. If anyone sees you, you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. So that's the social context in which this eating takes place. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? You know, there's a play on words here. The word literally means, will he not be built up? Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So if your brother sees you eating, and by imitating you, he also eats even though he thinks it's sinful, the result is catastrophic. He says you cause that weak brother to sin, the one for whom Christ died. And so Paul says, look, I know that you think that hanging out with unbelievers is important and exercising your freedom is important, but is it more important than your brother's salvation? He says this weak person will be destroyed, will be brought to eternal ruin by the way you apply and practice your knowledge. Imagine that. Verse 12, thus in this way, sinning against your brothers, which is unloving, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Christ loved your brother. He loved your sister. And he ransomed him and ransomed her with his own blood. And your actions belittles his sacrifice. You sin against Christ himself by acting in this way. So how should you rightly apply this knowledge? Apply this knowledge in a way that shows genuine care for your brothers and sisters. Well, Paul says, have this mind. Have this attitude. Look at verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, the word is scandalize. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I'm willing to give that up. No problem. You see, it's in these words we can see Paul's love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. If food causes them to sin, if eating in this way leads them into sin, then I will never eat meat, he says. So precious is the salvation of the saints to Paul. Now I want to make two observations that I think can help us get a better grasp of this passage and can help us be more faithful and loving. Number one, be careful with new believers. Be careful with new believers. Look at verse 7. But some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to idols. So in their minds, they were sinning. This is the crux of the matter. They thought they were sinning, engaging in idolatry because they were eating this food. Then why did they still go ahead and do it? They were encouraged by the stronger believers. We, we see that. But what drew them to set aside what they knew was sinful and still sin? The only reason I can think of is the desire to be included. To be included. 
See, here were people who were probably new believers, not confident about their standing before Christ. They had much to learn. They were perhaps not so sure that they truly belonged in the household of God. If they didn't do these things, they thought if they, only if they did certain things, they would be accepted. They probably had many such misgivings. And it is incumbent upon those who are more mature in the faith not to trample on these loved ones. See, Paul warns us in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Secondly, allow the whole counsel of God to always inform your freedom, the way you exercise your freedom. Allow the whole counsel of God to always inform the way you exercise your freedom. Look at verse 9. Did you notice Paul says this right of yours, not this right of ours? I think that's deliberate. That's his way of not endorsing their action. But I also want you to look at verse 11 again. Look at verse 11 once again. Paul says to these proud Corinthians, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. You're causing these brothers to sin. Now, we understand that. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Mark 9, 42. So we cannot be indifferent or callous about what effect our actions might have on others. That should be enough to wake us up. But then he goes on to say, if your brother goes against his conscience, wounding it, he will be destroyed. That's pretty strong language, don't you think? It's the language of eternal destruction. And it ought to make you wonder, why does Paul use such language? It's a little extreme, Paul. Why not just say, look, sit down with these weak brothers, disciple them, strengthen their conscience, get them up to speed. That's the loving thing to do. And then after everyone learns to apply this knowledge rightly, let's all go to the temple for a barbecue together. Let's do that. He says, you'll destroy him. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't disciple weak brothers. We should. That doesn't mean we should not strengthen their conscience. We should. But he says, you'll destroy him. And that tells you that there's more going on here. I don't think Paul is saying, if no one sees you eating at the temple, it's fine, go ahead. No, it's not fine. Look at chapter 10, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then he goes on to explain that you cannot eat the Lord's Supper, partake of the Lord's table, and at the same time partake with demons. He's talking about eating sacrificed food at the temple. Wait, 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 wait. I thought you just said eating that food means nothing. That's true. So what does he mean? Chapter 10, verse 19. Look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? See, Paul says eating the food is fine, but the context matters. The context matters. We know that is the case because later he will say 
in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without question. And then if an unbeliever invites you for dinner and you know that he's serving you meat sacrificed to idols, you can eat it. Now there's more I want to say about that, but you'll have to wait till we get to chapter 10. But the point here is that because of the social context, there is great potential spiritual harm. And by ignoring this, you are provoking the Lord. You are provoking the Lord. See, you don't need to be afraid of demons. God is our Father. But you don't need to sit down for dinner with them either. Eating at the temple is not only unloving, but you're also sitting at the table with demons. Now, of course, there's no modern equivalent for this unless you go to a Hindu temple and sit down there and eat. And Paul says, if these weak brothers who already think they're participating in idolatry continue to do so, make a practice of it, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, this is a warning to both the strong and the weak. And we ought to read this warning just, just like we read 1 Corinthians 6, verses 8 and 9. Where he says, You yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? We should take that to heart. Beloved, knowledge and love go hand in hand. What God has joined together, let no man separate. God has placed us in a body and when Christ returns, we will be glorified together and that knowledge should cause us to be greatly concerned about the growth of every believer in this congregation. When we stand in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, only then can we understand love rightly. How do you relate to weak brothers? Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, with knowledge. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your clear word to us. And Father, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we would be loving towards our brothers and sisters even as we sit at the feet of Jesus and learn his word. We pray that your words would shape our minds and that your spirit would produce in us the fruit of love. Lord, we pray that the world would look at us and know us by our love for one another. Be glorified, O oh Lord, in your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.